Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news. Please don't forget the donate button at the top of the webpage. There's a subscribe button, a share button, and sign up for the newsletter so you know when the, the new stories are coming. I'll be back in a second with Bill Black. So we're continuing our series of interviews with Bill Black on what he calls control fraud. We started with the savings and loan uh, scandal uh, during the 1980s, and we're now up to the Obama administration. Uh, and in this section, we're going to talk about the crisis that Obama faced uh, and what he dealt with it, how he dealt with it. Uh, we're also been talking about a movie, a documentary series called The Con, which does a very detailed history of the lead up to the 0708 financial crash. And here's a clip from that film. One of the biggest conflicts of interest is the revolving door, which is where you have people spin through positions in government and positions in the private sector and positions in government. The point of the revolving door has been to enrich the people going through the revolving door who they, in effect, sell out their public service and engage in influence peddling. And the American people see this process of people going through the revolving door and cashing in, and they're in public service in some particular job for a couple of years, and they go out and get a million dollars or two million dollars from some big bank or the, or the bank's trade groups, and it sends the wrong message. It's a corruption of the process. And it's one of the most uh, troubling aspects of the conflicts of interest that are rife throughout Washington, D.C. I mean, just for example, take Citigroup and Robert Rubin and the, the decision to install Robert Rubin as vice chairman of the board of Citigroup. That led to very large payments for Robert Rubin, I think $120 million over a seven-year period for duties that were almost illusory. Who has the power to make those kinds of job offers? Who has the power and the wealth to influence our politicians and our regulators and our law enforcement personnel to that extent? Almost nobody, almost nobody. We're talking about a small handful of financial elites who run the biggest banks in the world. It's a partnership, unfortunately, between the, the Washington swamp uh, and, and Wall Street. I mean, uh, uh, when Lanny Brewer and Eric Holder uh, can revolve right through and go back to Covington and Burling making $5 million a year, uh, why, why, uh, you know, and so then they're representing corporations or hoping to get uh, uh, clients on Wall Street. Of course, you're not going to do anything to, to, to jeopardize that. And it's not just those two. It's, it's throughout. It's, it's lawyers at the SEC. It's, it's, it's just throughout. Working in Washington has become a resume uh, credential. You know, you, you get that on your resume and then you can go back to your firm and make even more money. Because now you know how it works. Now you can open all sorts of paths to further, you know, corruption and uh, between, you know, Wall Street and Washington. You know, and, and the promise of going to Washington to clean up the swamp, well, we know that that was further fiction. Uh, you know, immediately Donald Trump surrounded himself with Wall Street and corporate types. So the trick is, how do you get people in uh, public office be they appointed or otherwise, who are willing to forget uh, their loyalty to their prior employer, and most importantly, to their future employer. And that they're not just enhancing their resume to get the bidding up for when they're going out the back door, and they can give them all the inside skinny on what happens in the government to give their future employer an advantage 
over everybody else, and most importantly, over most Americans. Now joining us to discuss the history and present state of, as I said, control fraud, is Bill Black. He's in the film. He was an advisor to its producers. Bill's an American lawyer, an academic, an author, a former bank regulator with expertise in white-collar crime. He's the author of the book, one of my favorite titles, The Best Way to Rob a Bank is to Own One. He's an associate professor of economics and law at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. Thanks for joining us again, Bill. Thank you. So, uh, as I've been saying with each new segment, you really should go back and watch the whole series because we're going to pick it up where we left off. And where we left off is we now have President Obama. His administration is facing uh, the consequences of one of the biggest financial corruption cases and crashes therefrom uh, in U.S. history. And maybe you could pick up the story from there, Bill. Sure. So uh, President Obama comes in. He is obviously the first black president in the United States. And this crisis is not just control fraud, but control fraud plus predation which picks up on that scheme way back in the savings and loan days in Orange County, California. And who are they targeting in particular? Blacks and Latinx households. And not very long into it, will come out a study, uh, and a study by very conservative economists at the St. Louis Fed that says the wealth loss in households with at least a college degree that are Latinx is 70% of their total wealth, right? This is the decade basically of the great financial crisis wipes out essentially three generations of wealth accumulation. And the figure for black households is 60%. And in fact, it is households in both of these communities that have at least a four-year university degree that suffer much greater losses. Now, that's the opposite of the pattern for whites, where if you have a higher uh, educational uh, background, your loss is dramatically reduced. And why is that? Well, it's because, again, there's a lot of talk about predation, talk going after the vulnerable, and it does, but it's the vulnerable that have money, right? And if you have a college degree um, and you're black, first, you're much more likely to be married to someone who also, or partnered with someone who also has a college degree. And so, again, one of the great myths of the great financial crisis is that it's the subprime crisis. It isn't. We have the data. And uh, Thomas Herndon is a name nobody knows and everybody should know, right? This is a brilliant young economist who first overturned this, the, the book, right? The book that was being used globally to say, we need financial austerity in response to the great financial crisis that there's a fiscal cliff. And once the country hits 90% of GDP in debt, it, it basically, uh, you know, you fall into this terrible quagmire and it's almost impossible to get out of it. Well, Herndon, while still a grad student, 
was the lead author that reviewed this and said, we can't get your numbers to work. And now in fairness, these two very prominent conservative economists, Reinhardt and Rogoff, shared their stuff and they had simply made a massive data entry failure, right? They just failed to enter big chunks of the data. And they'd also done a lot of games in how they picked time periods and other such things. And when you corrected it, there was no longer a there there. The fiscal cliff disappeared entirely. So this is someone you should really listen to, right? And he has looked at the great financial crisis and he was the first one to actually do the study of the thing that you would think everyone would focus on. The thing that causes problems is losses, right? Losses on loans. That means the bank goes bankrupt. That means other banks go bankrupt like dominoes, as we saw. So what you really want to care about is how big the loan losses are. Everybody else had been studying default rates and delinquency rates. And those are important, but only as an ingredient to get to how many the losses are causing. And when Herndon looked, he quantified that 70% of the total losses, loan losses in the great financial crisis, were coming from liar's loans, not subprime, right? Now, now hold on, explain the difference because everyone kind of, everyone, all right, everyone, because most people conflate the two things. That's right. And there are no official definitions, but the, by industry usage, a subprime loan means either that you've got no credit history and therefore you have no credit rating, or you have a really bad credit rating, right? But of course, a liar's loan means that the bank doesn't verify the borrower's income. The lender does not verify the borrower's income. And it is super simple and cheap and quick to verify the borrower's income. So any honest lender would verify it. Why are they not doing so? Because that lets the loan brokers who the bank has incentivized, the bankers have incentivized to inflate people's incomes, make much more loans and much bigger loans and make the loans appear safer. Because if I got lots of income, the loan is safer, right? I've got, I'm a real good type person. And similarly, as we talked about it, you inflate the appraisal by extorting the appraisers. And that makes the loan look much safer. So that's the scam. That will overstate asset values enormously. The more you ask, um, overstate asset values, the more you can loot. And that's what it's called, looting. Right? It's a pretty interesting term by two Nobel Prize winners in economics, George Akerlof and Paul Romer. So it's not like we're making this stuff up. Okay, so liar's loans, we massively inflate the borrower's income. Is that a good way of um, seeming to qualify for the Community Reinvestment Act of loaning to poor people? No, but I suppose it's, I suppose it's easier to inflate income if somebody has a college degree. So this just blows apart 
the whole theory uh, that it was a government that made them do it or that they were trying to loan to poor people. No, these are loans going to people that have typically substantial income. Now, some of them are also subprime because there's these are two mutually different characteristics. So you could combine the two. You can loan to somebody who has a terrible credit history and where you don't var verify the income, right? And indeed, by 2006, half of all the loans called subprime are also liar's loans. So this was the overwhelming cause of the actual crisis. Now, that means we've got fabulous fraud cases. We have not just that you are looting by reporting false numbers, but each of the individual steps and that false reporting would be a federal felony. But on top of that, each of the individual steps are a federal felony. When you extort an appraiser, that's a federal felony. When you um, inflate the borrower's income as the loan brokers uh, and the loan officers did millions of times, millions of times, that is a federal felony. And when you sell these loans to somebody else, you have to make representations and warranties, reps and warranties, that you didn't do these things, that you complied with your written underwriting standards, which bans all such things. So that is a third felony. And then you use this to file false financial statements with the government, which is a fourth felony. And then you, if you're publicly traded, you file false financial statements with the SC Securities and Exchange Commission, which is a fifth felony. <laughs> so this is pick your poison of just a, in military speak, a target rich environment for fraud <laughs> prosecutions, right? Now, back in the day, the savings and loan debacle, we had never seen liar's loans. They were brand new. I mean, totally brand new, none beforehand. And our examiners, the little savings and loan examiners, first time viewing, got it right immediately. And we write about this and we prosecute people and we drive them out of the industry for doing this liar's loan plus racially based or ethnic based predation. Because that was the key thing that AmeriQuest did. And as I've explained in prior uh, talks, becomes the Johnny Rotten Appleseed that spreads, spreads this fraud scheme first through the shadow financial regulatory sector and then back in to the regular, supposedly regulated sector, except that regulation has died during this time period. Okay, so then in Obama's case, he doesn't have to invent anything. We know what the fraud scheme is. We've known since to the year 2000. We've been putting this in writing and warning about it. So at that point, I'm sorry, not the year 2000, the year 1990. Okay, so that's 18 plus counting during the Obama administration years. 
They they just have to take the book off the shelf, turn to page six. Oh, these are the fraud plus predation schemes. This is how you stop them. This is how you prosecute them. Because <laughs> we get over a thousand felony convictions. We create the top criminal referral system in the world, which proves to be critical. And back in our day, we had no prominent whistleblowers from within the industry, none making our cases. But Obama has this mass of whistleblowers and not just whistleblowers, he's got whistleblowers who are from a perspective of somebody who trained the prosecutors and the FBI agents to die for, to dream, <laughs> your dream witness that bring the case on a platinum platter and not against little people, against Bob Rubin, the most powerful financial person probably in the world at that point, right? And a big ally of President Obama, right? And Anthony Mazzillo, who had that Anthony, you know, the, uh, the, his list of, of favored politicians who got special deals from Countrywide and who was just a, a rant led in a massive fraud. And again, you don't have to take my word for it. There's a Securities and Exchange Commission complaint that says, here's what our investigation found, and it's fraud after fraud after fraud led from the C-suite, right? And we have Michael Winston, a really senior guy who reports directly to Mozilla and who tells Mozilla directly, this is insane. What you're doing is going to produce a catastrophe. And the reaction is not, oh, thank you for saving the company. How can I promote you? It, of course, is to force him out. Mozilla's who again? He, the head of uh, um, the what after Ameriquest becomes the largest purveyor of fraudulent liars loans in the world, right? So these are enormous, super elite, super politically connected folks who would, if you prosecuted them, would have sent the message. There is a new sheriff in town. I, Obama inherited this crisis from those guys, the bad guys. I, Obama, am going to follow radically different policies of holding personally accountable the thieves that became incredibly wealthy by producing the great financial crisis. I, Obama, will point out the three national warnings that we talked about, the appraisers in 1998 and 2000 warning of an epidemic of felonies. The head of the FBI unit that is supposed to deal with mortgage fraud, who in September 2004 says there is an epidemic of mortgage fraud and it will cause a financial crisis and zero federal regulators under the Bush administration pick up the phone and say, Tell me about this and how I can stop it, right? Zero. And the third one is the industry's own anti-fraud experts who say, you know, these liars loans, 
90% of them are fraudulent. And typically they overstate the borrower's income by more than 50%. So they're not just fraudulent, they're massively fraudulent. And the curve of these liar's loans from 2003 to 2006 goes like this. They grow more than 500% and hyperinflate the bubble and cause a terrible problem to become a catastrophic problem. And on top of that, they're largely targeting people of color. And we have the first president of color in the history of the United States. As I say, we know exactly how to prosecute these folks without any whistleblowers. And you have the best whistleblowers in the history of the world. And America doesn't understand how blessed it is compared to other nations in the frequency of whistleblowers. This is not the norm around the world, right? That you get these many people. What does the Obama administration do? It immediately makes the crisis it inherited its crisis. It looks around and says, who is the absolute worst financial regulator in the world? And they look and they look and they go, Ben Bernanke, right? He had the perfect statute. He was the only person in the United States of America. The president couldn't do this, but Ben Bernanke could. He could have stopped all liars loans under a federal statute passed in 1994 by Congress specifically to stop these kinds of abusive and predatory loans. It's called the Home Ownership and Equity Protection Act of 1994, and it gave authority to the Fed, Federal Reserve, and only the Fed, regardless of whether the institution had federal deposit insurance, to shut down all these things. Now, Alan Greenspan, of course, had been the Fed chairman up to right at the beginning of 2006. So he bears enormous responsibility for this. And I've already explained that Bill Clinton reappoints this Ayn Rand groupie twice to be the regulator. And of course, Alan Greenspan absolutely refuses to listen to the appraisers, absolutely refuses to listen to the FBI, absolutely refuses to listen even to the industry's own anti-fraud experts and use HOEPA to stop the liar's loan. Okay, so he gets primary responsibility, but Greens, uh, uh, Bernanke comes in very early, right at the beginning, January 2006, and he's seeing this massive rise in liar's loans. And he's got all these reports from the state attorney generals that it's the lenders that are putting the lies in liar's loans, not the borrowers. The borrowers don't even know the right numbers to put in, right? So it's the loan brokers and the bankers who are in doing the scams. And AmeriQuest, for example, every branch has what they called internally the art department. And the art department was because they were artists. They whited out the numbers and put in new numbers and they would trace signatures. 
uh, and such. So you'd have a glass window with the sunlight going through and you'd put the document up so that you could trace onto it, right? Old school, baby, old school. Not, none of the sophisticated stuff for them. You didn't need to be sophisticated because there were no more, you know, you were in the shadow. There was no regulation at all of AmeriQuest. Okay, so Ben Bernanke finally, in like 2008, after the liar's loans have collapsed and aren't being made anymore, proposes a rule to stop liar's loans. This is after the great financial crisis hits, right? And even then, he defers the effective date of the rule by over 15 months. Because, you know, maybe there's still some fraud left and you wouldn't want to get in their way. You know, it's just absolutely insane stuff. Okay, so Ben Bernanke, what the heck are we going to do with him? President Obama will reappoint him. Now, he's a partisan Republican who has just been a colossal failure and is continuing to be a colossal failure on the regulatory and non-prosecutorial side. And out of all the people in America, Obama says that guy should get another term. Now, who, you know, that's Bernanke, but he's top level. How about field type guys, right? Who is the worst field regulator in America? Well, that's one's easy. Who was supposed to be the top cop for Wall Street? Tim Geithner, president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. I know, let's make him the Secretary of the Treasury, the most powerful economic position in the world. Because he was at absolute, total, abject failure. And who's it? And is it, who's advising Obama to do this? Is this Larry Summers? I mean, who's who's telling Obama? Obama doesn't, you know, he's being told what to do practically by Wall Street. Who's doing the telling? So he's got a bunch of people in his orbit who are Wall Street. He's and uh, two of them will become. Um, his staff director, right? Which again is in White House terms, the chief of staff, one of the most powerful positions in the world, right? So one, uh, Rahm will then later become the mayor of Chicago, but he comes from Wall Street. And the other one is Daly, as in the Daly family, except this is the Dailies of Chicago that goes to Wall Street, right? So they have those two. And the third that had enormous connection with Obama is the Pritzkers. And the Pritzkers, back to predation, what are they infamous for? Predating on people of color in terms of these home loans. And so our first African-American president says... I know, Geithner, he'll be our Secretary of Treasury. Now, the Secretary of Treasury, just as a footnote, is the boss of the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service. And what is Geithner famous for? 
not paying his taxes. And he isn't just someone who failed to pay his taxes. When he was told, because there's a review when you become president of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, and so they caught this. And they said, you have been filing your taxes improperly for years. And he said, I'll pay back any portion that isn't past the statute of limitations. <laughs> he decided not to repay the United States of America. Now, of course, when you're going to become Treasury Secretary, that's not a very good answer. So he finally pays at that point. So he is on every conceivable dimension. And by the way, he's taken one course in economics in his life, and he said he did terribly at it. <laughs> and he's, so of course he should be Secretary of the Treasury. So, because what would, does anyone need to know about economics or finance? Okay, so Obama surrounds himself on the financial side with a team of people who are terrible. And now he actually has some good, his Council of Economic Advisors, you know, for a traditional economist, a, quite a competent one. But Obama is famously sexist as well. So she gets frozen out. And Obama has what the books call famously a bro crush on Tim Geithner. And so Obama soon starts getting his economic advice almost entirely from the guy who A, knows nothing about economics, and B, has completely screwed up in you know, the world. That's how crazy it is. And he does not ever, so for example, the Obama campaign is up against, of course, John McCain. And John McCain was one of the five U.S. senators who I blew the whistle on with my notes of the Keating Five meeting. And so the Obama administration actually filmed a, a campaign video in our, the living room of our home in Kansas City primarily interviewing me about McCain and the Keating Five and how McCain hasn't, from his recent statements, then recent 2008-ish statements, learned anything from the days of it, right? So they're quite willing to use those aspects, but of course they would never let me anywhere near <laughs> having any governmental power <laughs> again. Um, so my career-limiting gestures, CLGs, had gone to career-ending gestures in the, in the public sector. So he's not going to bring anyone in who believes in regulating. And they don't even do the most basic things, which again, they didn't have to reinvent it at all, you know, the concept had already been proven and optimizing. So the top guy, and it's in the docuseries, The Con, explains we made, again, just our little agency in the savings and loan debacle, which was much smaller than the great financial crisis, 
made over 30,000 criminal referrals. Chris Swecker, the FBI person in charge of this, says he believes there were six criminal referrals from all the federal agencies with regard to the great financial crisis. None of which, by the way, were prosecuted. They were 0 for 6. But of course, in a broader sense, they were 0 for hundreds of thousands, right? So it isn't that they swung and they missed, to use baseball metaphor. They never got the bat off their shoulder. They were called out on strikes. Well, one of the ones I know you've talked about is is where some of the mortgage uh, paper hadn't even been signed and they start, they start getting robo signatures. What is, I mean, that is, I mean, all this is such outlandish fraud, but that's almost beyond imagination. They would think they would get away with that, but they did. Yes. So, um, there are ballpark 300 of entities that were really making the mortgages, the fraudulent mortgages. Not 20,000, not 2,000. Now, loan brokers, yes, there were army of those, hundreds of thousands of those people, but that's the point. Loan brokers were a force multiplier in military speak, right? Um, that let you with relatively small numbers of lenders make, again, literally over a million fraudulent liars loans were made in 2005, 2006, and that rate was being made for the first half of 2007 before the market collapsed. So these are extraordinarily large operations, but not that many institutions. So what happens as soon as the bubble stops hyperinflating? Now we can't refinance the loans. So that saying in the trade that a rolling loan gathers no loss no longer works. And here comes that other myth that you've heard. Oh, the crisis was because of the secondary market. And, you know, the people making the loans had no skin in the game because they were just going to sell it to the secondary market. Previous, um, Portions of this, I've explained why that's uh, a lie. But here's another demonstration that's a lie because all the lenders start failing, right? And they stop failing before the secondary market collapses. And it's because, in fact, they do have skin in the game in every single case. I got a question for you. You've made it clear to me that one must focus on the bankers and not the banks because it's the fees uh, that on all these BS transactions that make them all rich. But where is the board of directors of these banks? In theory, they should be wanting to defend the interests of the institution. They're all, most of them come from the finance sector themselves. I mean, are they all, they got their hand in the honey jar as well? Or I mean, aren't any, okay, why aren't so, some of the board directors screaming here? Because who picks the board of directors slate? <laughs> the CEO. <laughs> oh, the oh CEO. yeah, there is that. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, the CEO does not put people on who are going to raise a stink. And remember, this is not happening everywhere. 
There are 15,000 plus banks in the United States at this time period. This is 300 lending institutions doing 99% of all of these fraudulent loans. But when and it so, gets to the level of the big banks like Goldman's and Lehman Brothers and that, why aren't their boards of directors screaming or for the same reason? Because the CEO picks them too. <laughs> you do not put people on the board. So, and classic example is Enron, right? And by the way, Warren Buffett and um, Charlie Munger talk about this all the time, right? Uh, so they're considered two of the preeminent investors in the world history. Uh, and both of them have been on boards and they say, uh, they're wonderfully plain spoken about this, uh, th that you're treated as if you vomited uh, in the middle of the dinner party, uh, <laughs> if you raise a question. Your job is to simply add your name and reputation to the greater glory of the CEO. And so, even when they are on the board, they nobody nobody in the officer ranks wants to hear anything from them. And so um, the best people don't go on boards and they only go on boards, the good people only go on boards where the CEO actually wants someone of substance. Uh, Enron's a classic example. It had a board of directors that was uh, superstars. It has the head of the audit committee, somebody who had been the chair of the Stanford Graduate School of Business because he was an accountant. So he'd also chaired the accountancy department and he was known as a huge reformer. He voted to authorize the CFO to be on both sides of transactions with the special purpose vehicles I told you about in a prior episode. He authorized that among all the other board members unanimously. So there is a real groupthink stuff that is incredibly destructive in these settings. And for example, if you wanted somebody on a board who was good at detecting problems, you could think of Bill Black I assure you, I've never been a tra a, you know, approached to be a director of any entity, nor have any whistleblower. The last person in the world who would be put on these things. And again, we see this. This is revealed preferences, as we say in the econ biz. Don't, don't tell me about the crap speeches you give that are written by your PR folks. It's what you actually do that tells me about you. And my fellow, uh, you know, Bank Whistleblower United folks uh, who blew the whistle at Countrywide and uh, at Citigroup remain, this is now, you know, 13 years later, unemployed and unemployable throughout finance precisely because they were people of integrity who got it right. That, that is the thing they won't do. Okay, so just to make sure I'm I was getting this. back to the um, robo-signing. I haven't gotten... Oh, okay, okay, finish that, yeah. Okay, so robo-signing. Because all these firms are failing and because nobody is ever going to do these 
particular kind of scams again for at least a decade. When the place fails, it just goes into bankruptcy, right? And nobody wants to buy their assets because they got nothing of value. Okay, you're talking about these mid-level banks mostly. Or in particular, large- but actually it, it's the big, the giant ones in the shadow as well. So what the hell do you do with all the paper? You throw it in the trash. So millions of documents, original documents with what we call wetted, wet ink signatures were simply thrown in the trash because who would bear the expense of dealing with them? And then they I won't take the time, but they created this weird other thing to avoid paying fees to the public recordation folks. The combination meant that when they went to foreclose, they had time after time after time, the famous oh shit moment. We don't have the documents. Now, the law understands that occasionally documents get lost and there's some procedures. And to do that, to invoke it, and to say that this is an appropriate foreclosure, you have to make about 10 different factual attestations, and you have to do that under penalty of perjury. But of course, there are literally millions of these foreclosures, and the documents don't exist. So the only way to process them is to lie. And so that's what robo-signing really was. It wasn't, in fact, a mechanical signature, the way most people think. It was human beings told that all day, every day, and with a time clock on them, they had to lie at least 50, no, actually, I think it was more like 180 times an hour. Because they were sitting there signing people's names. No, they were not they were signing why there weren't names, why there weren't original documents, that there had been a lost document and this was a true copy of it. And they had verified that the person owed the money. And little lawyers, not big fancy ones, got them in a deposition room and said, so how much of this was true? And they said, none of it. And they meant, none of it? None of it. It's not like it was an occasional truth. This, these were rooms, vast operations dedicated to lies. And a company was created that would supply supposedly lost documents. And this is the greatest single thing. If you take nothing else away, so a little legal jargon, what you're going to do as part of this process is assign the rights so that somebody can foreclose you know, to an agent so that agent for, can foreclose on the property. So the people creating this form created a um, space holder, right? And a space holder is usually something like a TBN, to be named, right? But this space holder, because they obviously knew exactly what they were doing, and were had a morbid sense of humor is in a number of occasions they filled in 
bogus assignee. <laughs> that was their placeholder, bogus assignee. <laughs> and in several cases, the courts actually foreclosed on the basis of a document that said bogus assignee. Now, eventually some courts stopped foreclosing. Is that right? No. Well, yes, but that was trivial. Um, what happened is the company, the companies that uh, own the mortgage servicing rights, which are valuable, even in these circumstances, said a grander oh shit moment. <laughs> and that was stuff that they had paid tens of hundreds of millions of dollars for were going to be reduced to nothing of value if they allowed this to persist. And so they, A, created a stoppage, a timeout on foreclosures. Then began the Obama administration, one of its most interesting cons. If anybody even modestly competent investigates this. This is the greatest series of cases you can imagine. This is a litigator's dream, right? It doesn't get this good. And you would have witness after witness after witness saying, yes, it was 100% perjury. How many times did you do it? 10,000 times, 50,000 times, right? That type of thing. You can imagine, and, and remember, State and local hearings in many places are televised or could be televised. The, the press is allowed in. So imagine the American people seeing this day after day after day. And so the banker types went, we have to stop this, right? These investigations will destroy us. And so they cut a deal. And they cut a deal incredibly cheap. And then Schneiderman. They cut a deal with the Obama administration. They cut a deal with the, with the Obama administration, but more broadly, uh, they had to get in the state AGs was their political problem. And Schneiderman was holding out some. And so the, the Obama administration. Who, who, who is, who's Schneiderman? The New York Attorney General okay. at that time. And so the Obama administration used one of the absolute classics. We'll give him a title and a fancy job and under some versions of the story, invite him to um, the State of the Union address as a special honored you know, person and give him a shout out. They made him the co-head of the federal task force. And what does every New York AG have in common? They want to be governor of New York. It's the stepping stone uh, for it. And so Schneiderman was very politically uh, motivated, let's put it that way. And so he just gave up. And they did a settlement that they made sound large, but was incredibly trivial. And one 
person went to jail. The person who was the the woman, of course, who was uh, in a senior level in the company that actually manufactured the fraudulent documents. But remember, this is occurring years after the great financial crisis. So none of these things are the cause of the great financial crisis. So the Obama administration managed to keep unblemished its record of uh, going, uh, again, in baseball, 0. 0.000, um, you know, and, and with never even swinging the bat. Um, it never holds anyone senior accountable who actually led the frauds that drove the great financial crisis. They refused to uh, even seriously investigate those people. The top training person, uh, this may seem obscure, I assure you it isn't, was the um, U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of California, which is Sacramento. And yes, that isn't the biggest office, but as the top training person, he and uh, the co-chair of, uh, of the key committee, he was really, really important. And he said, in response to reporters' inquiries that I instigated, well, that that black guy, you know, um, Bill Black Guy, uh, it, it, with about looting, that doesn't make any sense. Because when you loot a bank, the bank loses money. So, and I quote, why would they steal from themselves? Now, he can't even keep his pronouns consistent, six words apart, you know, type of thing. The they is the CEO. The themselves that he's stealing from is not him. It's the bank, right? So these are people that refuse to exist refuse to admit the existence of something that had just driven the savings and loan debacle, and then the Enron era frauds, and then was obviously being reprised the same exact recipe. And I wrote to him, because at first I thought he was just, you know, he just didn't get it. And I was afraid that he, his words were going to be used by every defendant in a criminal case. I was so naive that I thought there might be defendants in criminal cases. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he ignored it. And so I wrote a, instead of a super nice one, a, look, just a, here's the facts one. And how the Nobel Prize winners in economics had done it, how we had gotten the prosecutions, and here's my contact information and such. And of course, I got uh, nothing back uh, from him ever. And they never changed. So Obama's famous line was, you know, uh, well, some of the worst things they did aren't criminal. How does that justify, A, not prosecuting the things that are criminal, and B, if that's true, then your top priority should be introducing legislation to criminalize the worst things um, that are not criminal but should be in these circumstances. So uh, the Obama administration uh, picked Holder and he picked Lanny Brewer. 
Holder is Attorney General of the United States of uh, America, Lanny Brewer, uh, as head of the criminal division. And Lanny Brewer openly said in a documentary, you know, frontline expose type thing, I lose sleep over the fear that I might cause a bank to fail by prosecuting the criminals. And they always thought of, talked in terms of prosecuting the bank. And we're going, why would you prosecute the bank? That would be stupid. You prosecute the people looting the bank, right? That's what we did over a thousand times successfully. Why wouldn't you do that? And Lanny's answer was, well, that suing the CEO who looted the bank would be destabilizing. And so my standard comment during that era was to every reporter, modern financial regulators are obviously vastly more sophisticated than we were back in the day because we had never figured out that leaving frauds at the head of our most powerful financial institutions was the key to achieving financial stability. Okay, hang on. Um, I think we should end here and then we'll pick up. Um, So let me just... So, so the so the the new book should be the best way to rob a bank is to manage one. Uh, owning is just great. Uh, it's it's best to own it, and in the savings and loan, frequently you were both the CEO and the hundred percent owner, and that meant nobody could get in your way. So, if you want the ideal type, it's still uh, to own it, but make sure that. But you're right. The key is to manage it to be able to loot it. Okay, we're going to pick this up in the next segment. We'll get to the the big bailout. Uh, the fraudsters are not, uh, not only are they not charged, arrested, or go to jail, they're handed a lot of dough. Uh, so please join me for the next segment with Bill Block. And please don't forget the donate button and the subscribe button, and uh, see you soon. Mm-hmm. 